Thought Leadership from PwC's National Office Studios. Folks have to play catch up as they go back to the office to make sure that they are able to optimize their technology, their people, and their workforce environment in that triangle effectively. That's my guest for today, Byron Carlock, leader of PwC's U.S. real estate practice. This is Heather Horn, and thanks for joining me for the next episode of our Forecast 2021 podcast miniseries. It's no secret that the workplace is changing, and today we're looking at how companies are re-examining and redesigning their real estate footprint. From the focus on safety to providing insights on the varying trends by market, Byron and I will cover all the hot ticket questions CFOs are asking as they rethink their infrastructure needs and future investments. And with that, let's get started. So Byron, I know that you've been out in the marketplace talking to CFOs and others in terms of the shift of, are we going back to the office? Are we not? Is it hybrid? Is it not? And what that looks like and that a lot of companies have not, most companies are re-examining their real estate footprint. So what's on the mind of CFOs as you're talking to them? Heather, it's all over the board, and it's really a fascinating topic right now. You may remember last spring uh, in our Pulse survey with CFOs, 84% of them said that they were going to use less real estate and even maybe not use office real estate at all. And then by January of this year, it was 51% of the CFOs saying, oh my goodness, we may need more because we may have overdensified and we need to spread people out and rethink the way we use office space. So as you're probably aware, the bulk of our practice is serving owners and investors of real estate in our asset and wealth management practice. But one of our faster growing areas uh, has been occupier services consulting, helping our clients figure out how they want to use the space that they have across their various uses and across their various locations. And I guess just on that particular topic, you know, I think I was in the office, our PwC offices earlier this year, what back when not that many people were going in and, you know, every other office was blocked off and a lot of space couldn't be used. And, you know, a lot of people, I think at that time, were very focused on keeping everyone six feet apart, et cetera. Now there's been so much change and I think people are getting a little more comfortable being back in the office. So what are you seeing people doing with their space? I think we can look at the folks that are trying to reopen and bring people back, like we see in the financial services space, really trying to focus on safety on the admission to the building, temperature checks, tracking and tracing, uh, spacing in the space such that everyone's not sitting five feet apart or even three feet apart anymore, that you have the option of sitting in an open bench space or in an enclosed office or in a social and collaborative space. You know, as you saw that first visit back to our own offices, I think our office managers internally would prefer that we, you know, go in with hazmat suit and not be six feet apart, but 20 feet apart. And you're being chased around with sanitizers. And uh, I used an office for 30 minutes. And before I could even get out the door, they had people in with mops and, and yep. It, it, yep. Was, it was crazy. So obviously everyone's focused on safety. Everyone's focused on tracking and tracing, but I think the first line of defense now is the vaccination. 
as a screen. And that is that seems to be the first. If you feel safe yourself, if you've been vaccinated and you want to go back into the office, it's available to you. I would say that some of our more enlightened users of space are saying, not only do we want you back in the office, we want it to be a special visit. We want you to feel like you're welcome, that you've got a place to sit on your terms in your space with your team. And the audiovisual equipment has been updated while we've been closed so that you can very appropriately Zoom with your people from the office as well as from the comfort of your home. So both and, not an either or. You use the space as you need it. You go home when you need to. But in all cases, we've learned greater levels of connectivity. We've tried to hold our teams together. But I'll tell you, some people are tired of working from home and they need the socialization of being back in the office. So the the smarter and enlightened users are up, upping their game with respect to space, decor, size of conference rooms, food and socialization, you know, cleanliness around the food stations and the coffee stations and realizing that it's a part of our work life that we need to make comfortable for folks as they come back while also focusing on safety. The fallout is we've probably got the largest level of sublease space in our major markets than we've ever seen before. It was reported on Friday by one research house that there was over 200 million square feet of sublease space. And it varies by city, it varies by type of office, but that's a big number, and it's going to take us a while to work through that. But on the other hand, there are folks that are realizing they put something on the market for sublease, and maybe they shouldn't. Maybe they need to bring it back because as they bring people back to the office, they actually need that space. And of course, I shared 51% of those CFOs think they might even need more space. So are you seeing, back to the use of space, are you seeing companies trying to sort of retrofit what they already have or people sort of taking blank sheet of paper and saying, okay, if we could design an office of the future, this is what that office would look like? Or I'm sure it's sort of everything in between. It is everything in between. I've had everyone uh, from those that were proactive that began last summer redoing their space all the way to those calling in a panic saying, what do we need to do now? We're all going back to the office next week. I will tell you that the architects and designers are very busy. If you've tried to order any furniture or get any contractors to do anything during the pandemic, you realize it's not something you can do quickly because the supply chain is backed up and there's a labor shortage. So folks are largely having to make do with what they have using yellow tape and red tape to block off areas where it may have been over-densified. And at the same time, create partitions to create private spaces, but at the same time, try to enlarge conference spaces and improve video technology. So let's let's talk about a few different scenarios in terms of people working. And one would be the hybrid work. And again, we're really focused here on office workers for at least now. And you know, this idea of maybe people working at home a few days a week, working in the office a few days a week. So then what do you do if your entire workforce all wants to come to the office the exact same day, and then the rest of the time your space is empty? Do you see companies trying to balance that out or just making sure they have enough space for that sort of peak occupancy? We're seeing it all over the board with respect to how it's being managed, but I think the folks that are trying to make sure everyone has office exposure during the week if they want it have team days, you know. Team Orange goes in on one day or two days or three days. Team Red goes in, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday or Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I think that 
as we have experimented ourselves, we've noticed that there are peak times, peak days, especially Mondays and Fridays. If teams are trying to get together for team meetings or planning or account planning or brainstorming. So it does have to be managed. And then you talked about equipment. Are you seeing a lot of people upgrading their you know, audiovisual equipment in the office so it feels a little bit more like you're in one room, even if you have a few people who are remote? I'm hearing more about it. I've not seen actual new implementations. As you know, 18 months ago, we didn't even know what Zoom was. And so all of the technology has been improved to allow for flexible meetings. What I'm seeing more than anything is the socialization of important things like onboarding, product introduction, brainstorming, business planning, strategic planning, cultural inculcation, all require, not require, but it's better if it's face-to-face. And those rooms are the rooms that probably need more investment in whiteboards and technology and um, recording capabilities, as well as really clear audiovisual capabilities. And so we are seeing people talk about it. Uh, I've only been in the office a few times. I was in New York on Friday, and it's, um, it's a different place. And, and I think we're all going to figure out how we want to use it to accomplish what we need to do in order to serve our clients. And for businesses, it's what do they need to do to make their business move forward, realizing that 16 months away from the office is probably too long. And so, as you've seen in New York, the financial services industry saying, you know, come back. So let's go then to the actual office space itself. And you mentioned this huge amount of sublease space available. Are you seeing overall then rents are declining? Like if I'm someone thinking maybe I want to move, maybe I need less space, but I want nicer space. You know, what what types of things are you seeing from that perspective? So that's a really good point, Heather. And once again, the answer is it's all over the board. I think that large number of sublease space was probably an overreaction to folks saying, let's do let's do more with less because we're we are going to make the decision to let our folks have a flexible schedule, work remotely when they want to, and come in when they want to without thinking about how they want to use the office when people do show up. And so it's going to be an iterative process of finding the ideal, the balance between expensive space in tight urban locations, the flexibility of working from home, and even taking new space in the suburbs to make commute times easier because they're still, uh, in the major cities, reticence to use mass transportation. So if you think about the first level of determination, it's what do we have and how can we make it work better? And then number two is we need to make sure that our technology is working appropriately and 5G transmission becomes very important, especially for buildings that don't have it with constant and dependable signal. So I think technology is going to be a gating issue. Then third is waking up and saying, this building I'm in may not be as relevant to my needs as it once was. And that's when you go off on the plan to either have something built for you, build it yourself, or lease new space that can be fitted out to your specifications. I think in the office area in particular, we will see a great bifurcation between those offices that are relevant to these new needs and those offices that have lost relevance and need to be repurposed into another use such as apartments or or hotels or affordable housing or workforce housing. And 80% of our office stock in America was built in the 80s or before. So don't be surprised if that's a lot of buildings in the markets that you look around. There are buildings that have lost relevance and will have to either be major repurposing, where major repurposing will have to be done, or demolition. 
So it's interesting on the major repurposing. I live in Los Angeles, as most of my listeners know. And the office space here is interesting, right? We have downtown, but then we have all the beach cities have a lot of office space as well. And there's actually a old mall that's relatively near to my house that they had converted into offices pre-pandemic. It's They're still being built, I think still being finished, but it was sort of the opposite direction that they were taking this mall and making it into office space. So it sounds like we're still going to see some of this just depends on, it's all, I guess, location, which I guess is always the case with real estate. Sure. But even some that's not in the best location in your market is being turned into studio space. It's being turned into fulfillment space. You know, we all get to have a blank canvas and look around at the four walls that surround us and say, what's the best use for this market? And that's happening in every market. There's a major retailer that is connecting with a major e-commerce provider to split mall usage between traditional retail and fulfillment space. And that's gotten a lot of press, as you know. There are office buildings that are being turned into multi-floor fulfillment space for urban um, distribution. And then there are office buildings and hotels that are being converted into living units for the homeless and for affordable housing. Because we talk a lot about where societal needs meet real estate realities. And there's a lot to be done there. And I'm watching our industry, and you may have read in our Emerging Trends 2021 publication, this has been a year where we've really seen our industry step up to some of the social needs that only our industry can work to provide in working alongside philanthropy and government to find major major solutions for homelessness, affordable housing, workforce housing, while also maintaining the need for moving to greater ESG sensitivity on the environmental side adding green space, moving toward carbon neutrality. That's all falling on the shoulders of the real estate industry, working with local authorities and developers and infrastructure planners to really reach some of the societal needs that have been deferred. You know, Byron, it's funny you mentioned that because I was actually in New York myself a couple of weeks ago in our office building there uh, in our studio. And I was walking in New York and through, I guess, what they call a pocket park. So it's in between two buildings. And one of them was a new building. They had um, constructed this park and it was open 24 hours. And so I guess that's a case where finding green space, this new office building, well, or it was actually a new hotel, had have found this space. And it sounds like you think we're going to see more and more of that where real estate property owners are stepping in to fill some of these different societal needs. It's a triangle between investors and owners, philanthropy, and then government and city planners. You know, we created these concrete jungles after World War II, believing that that was a good thing for improving our cities and our business environments. All of a sudden, we realized, really beginning in the late 70s and later 80s, that concrete is a major producer of carbon. And so what do we need to do to shrink that carbon footprint, improve the quality of life, improve air quality? And uh, I began my career in the real estate industry with the Trammell Crow Company. And Mr. Crow used to always have us put bumper stickers on our cars that say trees are the answer. He was ESG sensitive before it was cool to be. And those were very interesting comments that he would make about our responsibility as developers and owners at the time to be cognizant of the environment and add more green space to the environment. And I think now that's a huge awakening as in 2021, we've got catch up to do and taking out concrete and replacing it with green space is a perfect way for philanthropy, government and business to work together. 
Well, I have to say this little park was quite pleasant to walk through compared to just walking on, along the streets. So. Absolutely. And who who would have thought that dog parks would be programmed into development 10, 20 years ago? And now it's it, it's table stakes. And so we're, we're making great strides in that in that direction. So Byron, you've mentioned early on that you're seeing a lot of different trends by city. Are there any that you would highlight? You mentioned LA, we talked a little bit about New York, but any specific trends that you would highlight where you're seeing different things in different parts of the country? Heather, the most dramatic from the pandemic was the urban exodus from New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. And the New York exodus was different than the other two because most people just moved further out into the suburbs, realizing that they still wanted access to the city when they needed access to the city and were willing to deal with longer commute times because they might not have to go in but two or three days a week. And so you watched the really uh, absorption of unsold inventory in places uh, like Philadelphia and all the way up to the far northern suburbs uh, into the Hudson Valley in New York. And we are now experiencing a housing shortage in those suburbs where there was proclamation five years ago that the suburbs were dead. Mm-hmm. And so it's that, that's been the most dramatic shift. And so as I shared, New Yorkers did not go uh, as far, although a lot did move to Florida. You, you saw a lot of the popular press talk about the moves uh, to Florida. But Florida's always been New York's backyard, but it really grew during the pandemic. Chicago and San Francisco exodus appears to have been more long-term. The tech industry, major tech companies chose to move to Texas, Salt Lake, uh, Raleigh-Durham, out of the Bay Area. And so although still a very important tech hub for the world, uh, there was a huge population exodus that went to other cities. Uh, one of the surprises was Boise, Idaho. I mean, Boise, Idaho became a big tech exodus uh, and has really flourished as a as a city. Nashville, Tennessee, Dallas, Texas, Austin, Texas, also big uh, recipients of inflows of all industries, not just tech, but Austin especially for the tech space. Well, so then these cities that got these big inflows, then you have the resulting need for infrastructure. So are you seeing discussion of big infrastructure in some of these places? You know, it's interesting. If you look at the infrastructure bill that is being discussed on the Hill right now, uh, a lot of it is directed toward decaying infrastructure in the major cities. And I would say behind that is the hope that there might be a boomerang. I'm told 800,000 people left London. And you you look at last summer, 5,000 households a week were leaving um, the major boroughs of Manhattan. But the cultural infrastructure in, in our major cities like New York and London cannot be rebuilt overnight. And the cultural infrastructure will probably lead to the boomerang back at some point. It's already happening in Washington, D.C. So I'm I'm not ready to pronounce those cities gone or dead. But they are certainly going to go through a major readjustment and improving deferred infrastructure expenditure and showing that roads, bridges and tunnels can be safe and attractive again in those cities will be a good use of infrastructure dollars. Now, the infrastructure needed in the growing cities relates more to uh, technology and rapid transit. Uh, Hopefully, we will not repeat the ills of suburban sprawl and more ring roads, but we will create cities that are livable and walkable uh, without adding to auto congestion and suburban sprawl like we thought was the formula post-World War II. Agreed. So many, so many directions we could take that, but those all sound like totally separate set of, of podcasts, but I may have to be back on some <laughs> well, of that. Heather, the, it really, uh, what excites me, and there's, a, it's daunting, it's daunting. And we've all read our own book, uh, 
10 years to midnight that Blair did. And it was a great book, but the, the bright side of responding to these major social challenges is that there are thoughtful responses that I'm seeing the real estate industry embrace that seeks to make our cities better, safer, more livable, more walkable, cleaner, uh, using technology enablement to allow us to perform our jobs without having to cram into tight spaces. And I think we've learned a lot in this pandemic that it can be done. And it doesn't. it's not a life we want to live forever, but there have been both blessings and inconveniences associated with this time. And it's given us a time to reflect on how can we be the best at what we need to do and what changes can we make to make it better for our people? How can we create safe work environments and enjoy the cities that we find ourselves doing business in? At the same time, companies are saying, this city no longer works for me or this area, this building, this neighborhood no longer works for me. Where do I need to find the optimization where I can create the triangle of technology, workforce environment, and people strategy? And you talked to Bouchon last week about the people strategy, and it's really the whole triangle. If you put the business strategy in the middle of that triangle and then think about how technology, people, and space come together to optimize the business strategy, marry those three points of the triangle with the business strategy, that's where magic happens. Well, I love your optimism. I guess when you see companies that are doing this well, any hints that you give to others that are listening, thinking, I probably need to do more, I probably need to be more proactive in this area? I spent time yesterday with a client that was bemoaning the cost of transformation. And I said, the cost of transformation to you is the fact that you haven't spent it before. So you're you're upset at the dollar amount, but frankly, you've pushed transformation off your priority list for too long and you have no choice but to play catch up. So there's there's incremental transformation and there's monumental transformation. I think the surprise right now, and it's the reason so many of our platform areas are so busy, is because folks have to play catch up as they go back to the office to make sure that they are able to optimize their technology, their people, and their workforce environment in that triangle effectively. And those that are upset about the cost realize that they just probably put it off too long. You mentioned Bouchon, and one of the things we talked to Bouchon about is that it's hard to know even six months from now. People think they have the answers, but then six months from now, we're going to realize some of them are good, some of them aren't so good. And when we think about real estate, that is not something that you can easily change, right? So if you made a decision, you moved out of the space, you suddenly realized you need it, or you lease new space, you realize you don't need it. So as you see people approaching those real estate decisions, any best practices, I've assumed move slowly, but anything else? No, I'm glad you brought it up, Heather, because I had it in my notes to talk about it. I think what we're seeing is owners and lenders willing to accept shorter term leases in exchange for reduced landlord expenditure on the space so that the tenant can put the improvements into the space to fit their needs. If they need four white walls with desks because they don't know how long they'll need the space, that's one solution. If they know that it's going to become a strategy center or a business experience center, then they can make the blowout investment to uh, really have all the technology in place to bring their people together for high-tech exploration. Where it doesn't fit so logically is in the life sciences space that's really enjoying a terrific resurgence. And that space is very expensive to construct both exterior and interior. And that requires longer-term leases in order to Uh, finance the building properly and keep the lenders interested that it's not being built just for a short-term use. 
And so I think depending on the use and your own flexibility, there is uh, a shoe for every foot to find something that will meet those needs. Even the temporary workspaces have seen a resurgence in desk leasing. Uh, Even after the biggest one had its financial difficulties pre-pandemic, they've closed some of the offices and reworked their format and their desk leasing is up substantially. And so I think everyone that needs space is able to find space that works for them. And if they want to see a longer term lease, the landlords are offering uh, attractive incentives to build out the space accordingly. If they have shorter term needs, they're letting the tenants do what they need to in the space to match their lease term needs. And the lenders are accepting that, uh, whereas in the past, lenders have very rarely wanted to approve leases for less than five years. But this sublease inventory can be uh, enjoyed for much reduced rates that buys people time if they want to experiment with space and how they want to use it. Yes, it seems like this is a, if you're going to experiment with how you're using space, it seems like this is definitely the time to do that. Indeed. So, Byron, let me go back to something you said at the very beginning about safety. And I think what another thing the pandemic got us all much more focused on is air quality, air safety, building safety germs, all of those types of things. So are you seeing on the real estate side, companies investing in maybe better air filtration systems or more cleaning? Or I was in an office building, actually a doctor's office, and it said the elevator buttons were self-cleaning. I'm still not quite <laughs> sure. Still not quite sure how that worked. And honestly, it's not that hard to use your sleeve to cover the button. But in any event, thought that was funny. Um, so are you seeing those types of changes or again you know, there was like a blip with the pandemic where we're seeing people kind of back off a little from that. You know, I think you're seeing traditional office and uh, uh, retail landlords borrow techniques from the, from the healthcare industry and from the hospitality industry where these type of cleaning protocols have been available but not widespread. We've seen antimicrobial surfaces be introduced to commercial spaces, which had been limited to lab space and and high-tech healthcare spaces before. You've seen the pictures in Korea and Japan of the hazmat suit workers coming through with, with hoses with the sanitation chemicals. That's now available around the world for people to use to keep mass transit and public spaces clean. I would say almost all that I've seen had been in place pre-pandemic, but its use got accelerated dramatically uh, during the pandemic. One such use is the Merck 4 uh, air filtration systems that are available through the HVAC industry. And it really has taken that industry uh, on a quick ride to do a lot of retrofit and a lot of new systems and buildings where air quality needed to have, needed to be improved. Uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, when mold began dis- being discovered in biz- in buildings, there was a lot of remediation that was done that carried on into the uh, 2000s. We're now going to the next level of quality air filtration that keeps that from ever happening uh, or happening only in remote circumstances. So we are evolving with better practices that do make buildings safer. Uh, the Well Building Institute tracks those metrics. Uh, Gresby, as an international metric tracker, also does. And then we see the lead certification of buildings look at bronze, silver, gold, bronze, platinum leads. And the upper end lead certifications are becoming important, once again, table stakes for users wanting to know that the building has been done to meet those specifications. All right, Byron, any final trends you're seeing that you just would like to highlight for our listeners? Sure. What we've learned from the pandemic is going to be long lasting. And so everything from enhanced home offices, enhanced home classrooms, 
expect a change in the way we see our children go to school and go to college. Expect to see some colleges not make it or some colleges go to more remote teaching formats with limited on-campus visibility, which really takes away memories that you and I probably had of just fabulous college experiences. So what does that mean for the future of education? Every use of space from hospitals to retail to logistics to the way we live in our homes to the cities we choose to live in, the affordability of housing going forward, the decision as to where offices get located, the cities where choices are made for that location uh, are all up in the air right now. And the industry is trying hard to respond to user preferences as to how we use the four walls that we uh, use for inhabiting our life away from the office and our life in the office and the interchange in between. So it's a pretty exciting time. And when you marry that with the infrastructure that our nation is now prepared to embark on improving, you see that the real estate industry typically gets a 1.2 to two times multiplier from infrastructure investment. And so I think the shortage of workers, the increase in lumber prices and the increase in concrete prices may be here to stay for a while. So we we should choose wisely. Well, and it sounds like, Byron, it's someone who's been willing to embrace the fact things would change. You know, when you made the point about we're all working differently, you know, we're treating our homes differently and everything else. I think people who are just, quote, wishing it would go back to the way it was, they're going to also miss out on some of the opportunity that's been created by the pandemic. Indeed. And we're tired of hearing words like paradigm shift and new normal and unprecedented change, but it's not stopping anytime soon. (laughs) (laughs) I was nodding frantically when he was saying that. So, uh, All right. Well, then one final question. So if you were looking into your crystal ball and fast forwarding uh, three years, what would you think we would be talking about in this area um, in, let's say, two to three years from now? I think we are just now beginning to awaken to the reality of climate change on living and location choices. And that probably is going to accelerate. I think that's our next our next sequel to this discussion. Yes. Because, <laughs> because the way climate change will end up influencing real estate investment is probably a whole new discussion. Well, and you actually mentioned lead certification. And I had that in my notes. So I do think that is a whole other discussion for us to talk about. But in the meantime, really appreciate all your insights. And thanks so much for joining me today. You're so welcome, Heather. Thank you. Thank you. That does it for today. Join me back here every Tuesday and Thursday for new podcast episodes. And if after hearing us touch on some of the environmental benefits companies are focusing on as they rethink their real estate footprint, you may be interested in registering for a broader discussion of ESG during our upcoming CPE Earning webcast, ESG, What Finance Teams Need to Know. That webcast is happening on July 22nd, and you can register at viewpoint.pwc.com. For PwC's National Office Studios, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.